0: Welcome to Curious City, where we answer your questions about Chicago, the region, or its people. I'm reporter Chris Bentley, and this week, well, this week's episode is brought to you by the letter B for booze, bootlegging, and brawls. Just ahead, we crack open two history stories involving Chicago's stumbly relationship to alcohol.
1: Curious City on WBEZ is supported by Old Town School of Folk Music with new class sessions in guitar, banjo, singing, and more. Classes available for beginners, advanced, adults, and kids. More at oldtownschool.org. And support comes from the University of Chicago Graham School of Continuing Liberal and Professional Studies Editing Certificate Program. There's an online information session August 13th. Details are available at gramschool.uchicago.edu. Who's the joke? What is going to be? When? Where, where do they? I? Why is it How many? What is the? What? <laughs>
0: I'm Chris Bentley, and welcome to Curious City, where we serve up answers to the questions you order. If you're fond of fine cocktails, maybe you've been to one of those new bars with an old style, a modern speakeasy. No sign, no windows, a hushed vibe, a general air of exclusivity. For example, there's the Violet Hour in Chicago's Wicker Park neighborhood. You just have to know where to enter. The faux speakeasy is a popular style these days, but what were Chicago's original, authentic speakeasies like? The ones from the days of Al Capone? We got a question along those lines from Virginia native Elena Haji-Michael. Where were there speakeasies in Chicago, and why were these buildings particularly well-suited to house speakeasies? To answer Elena's question, let's do a little time warp. It's the 1920s, Prohibition. Alcohol is illegal, but readily available. So if you're looking for a drink in the dry years of Prohibition, where do you go? You go to a speakeasy, an unlicensed or illegal saloon. But you're hard pressed to see what a typical Chicago speakeasy is. Thousands of places pass around booze during Prohibition. Some aren't even bars per se, but basements or backs of restaurants, anywhere you can covertly enjoy some alcohol. So, what to do? We found a few common elements that made it easy to get away with skirting this very unpopular anti-alcohol law. But for now, I'll tell you about three features common to most, if not all, Chicago speakeasies. What's the password? Secrecy. It's right there in the name. The word speakeasy comes from the fact that you'd always talk quietly about them so as not to alert the authorities. And So the actual doors into the speakeasy part are
2: over a foot thick and all filled with sawdust to insulate it.
0: This is Craig Alton, who leads Chicago's Untouchables tours. We're stepping into the back room of an Italian restaurant in Chicago's South Loop called Joko. Behind these thick vault doors, there's a windowless dining room with charcoal drawings on the walls. The retouched artwork hails from the days when this was a speakeasy.
2: You could be really loud back here, and who would know? The L train is directly behind us, so you had that going for you. But again, too, I think it was cold storage. What a perfect place to keep
0: big barrels of beer, right? A lot of speakeasies were windowless boxes like the back room at Joko. In the north side neighborhood of Andersonville, there's Simon's Tavern. It got its start in a cramped basement, accessed by a back alley off Clark Street. According to the bar's present owner, Scott Martin, Swedish immigrant Simon Lundberg found his cafe patrons spiking their coffee with whiskey. Martin says by 1926, Simon had made enough money from legitimate businesses to buy the building next door, where the bar is today. A lot of old Swedes were going, Simon, I don't want to drink the whiskey in the coffee. I want to drink the whiskey straight. In 1929, he got the okay to open up the business in the basement. It's called the NN Club. Uh, It stood for the no-name club. Unless I have a Swedish tour group and I tell them it stood for the no-Norwegians club. Most people will ask me, like, well, where was the bar set up? No, it was literally just five tables where the men were sitting here drinking whiskey and the whiskey bottles were along the wall. It was more like a club as far as a, like a bar or lounge. You know what I mean? It's more like a private club where you could literally get your whiskey straight. If you didn't have a basement or a back room, you could still run a speakeasy on the sly. That brings us to our second trait of a successful Chicago speakeasy.
1: Have an alibi.
0: A lot of speakeasies had a cover or front, a legitimate business that helped launder the illicit activity going on inside. Twin Anchors Restaurant and Tavern in Lincoln Park is a great example. Here's Paul Toozy, one of the bar's co-owners.
1: Operating in the what's now the dining room of Twin Anchors was what was called Tanty Lee Soft Drinks. So this was the cover for the speakeasy in the bar area here.
0: Even better, the bar was and still is across the street from a school. In what's now the bar's kitchen, there was a school supplies store. Between that and the soda shop, it didn't appear a likely location for a speakeasy.
1: Other than maybe putting it in a you know, a church or a convent or something, they probably couldn't come up with anything uh, more benign to, uh, to hide the operation.
0: So, speakeasies were secret, often used to cover or front, and I should mention a third trait about successful speakeasies.
1: Access to booze.
0: Speakeasies needed booze and some way to move it around. This applies to Twin Anchors. Susie says the place got its name because one of the founders worked in Monroe Harbor, unloading ships traveling the Great Lakes.
1: He had more access than most people would have to uh, the possibility of acquiring liquor coming in from Canada down into the port here, coming down from Lake Michigan.
0: In fact, Chicago's position at the intersection of the Chicago River and Lake Michigan was hugely important to all kinds of industries, legal or not. Here's Liz Garibay, who runs the website History on Tap.
1: Our infrastructure really helped You know, location, location, location is the whole reason Chicago is even here. So the fact that we had access to a couple of waterways, you know, and we're so close to Canada was helpful. We also had, from the very beginning, you know, underground roads, tunnels that helped move product and and goods. So that will certainly help the illegal shipment of alcohol.
0: The Green Mill in Uptown and lots of other speakeasies around town benefited from these tunnels. So, to answer Elena Haji-Michael's question about what Chicago buildings were well-suited to be speakeasies, let's recap. Speakeasies required secrecy or privacy. They often used a cover or front to keep up appearances, and they needed access to shipments of alcohol. So it's not entirely the building itself that made a successful speakeasy, but more its management and their business savvy. And that much about running a bar hasn't changed. Even if modern speakeasies, like the ones that inspired Elena's question, no longer have to worry about hiding the booze. In case you forget these traits, we've got a handy graphic to remind you of all of them. Maybe you can use it during your next bar or speakeasy crawl. That's at wbez.org slash curiouscity. Hey there, I'm
2: Dan Weissman with another booze-fueled story for Curious City. You might be surprised to know that decades before Prohibition, some Chicago neighborhoods could decide whether or not to serve alcohol. And in one case, a conflict over serving booze contributed to all-out vegetable warfare. But before I get ahead of myself, here's the question that prompted this tale.
1: My name is Laura Jones Magnan and my question for Curious City is what was behind the so-called cabbage war in West Ridge and Rogers Park? I would like to know more because you know, cabbage war.
2: Well, Laura, the roots of the cabbage war go back to the 1850s when Northwestern University in Evanston instituted a 4-mile radius zone that banned the sale of alcohol. The dry zone extended to what became the village of Rogers Park. Rogers Park had successful businessmen who commuted outside of the dry zone limit, and they could easily grab booze on the way home. But it was a different story in the area west of Rogers Park, West Ridge. West Ridgers did not commute so much. They were mostly farmers. Farmers who wanted a drink after a long day's work. Three of West Ridge's four taverns operated in the shadow of Northwestern's ban, So... In 1890, Westridge incorporated as its own village, a village that could have as many taverns as it pleased. Westridgers felt Rogers Parkers, who had voted themselves dry, amplified a threat to their lifestyle and businesses. And they were always putting on airs.
0: Spoiled,
1: pretentious, silk stockings.
2: For their part, the Rogers Parkers had plenty to say about Westridgers.
1: What they wouldn't do for another drink. Philistines. Farmers. Cabbage heads.
2: Animosity persisted even after 1893 when the city of Chicago annexed both areas, and things got really heated in 1895. That's when Rogers Parkers proposed a park along Lake Michigan, that would run north from Devon Avenue to Chicago's border with Evanston.
1: A day at the lake would brighten the man's spirit.
2: And taxes on West Ridgers would help fund it. Those Rogers Park thieves want to steal our taxes to build a lakeside garden on their side?
0: No way!
2: West Ridgers would not have it. The West Ridgers proposed the Ridge Avenue Park District. It would use tax money to create many parks on both sides of Ridge Avenue, not just near the lake. A vote was scheduled for April 14, 1896, to decide which park district would be created. Late one night, the brutal political campaign reached its climax. West Ridgers marched right into Rogers Park to confront a Rogers Park leader right at his home the West Raiders had taken the term Cabbage Head as a badge of pride so they arrived with a cart decorated proudly with heads of cabbages on sticks. A mob of Rogers Parkers pelted the West Raiders with bricks.
1: Ow! Ow! Oh, oh, out! Yeah. That. Oh, that. Oh, that hurt! Oh,
2: <laughs> By the end of the night, Sheridan Road was littered with stovepipe hats and smashed cabbages. But the vote over park district funding went on, and when the votes were tallied, the cabbage heads were victorious. The new Ridge Avenue Park District would oversee the creation of parks in both Ridge and Rogers Park, and, irony of ironies, Just a year later, the Rogers Parkers also got their Lakefront Park District. So today, there's plenty of park space for modern-day cabbage heads and silk stockings alike. Reporting for our stories came from Chris Bentley as well as Simran Kosla, who put together a sweet animated version of our Cabbage War story. That's at WBEZ.org slash CuriousCity. While you're online, look us up on iTunes. If you're a fan, and we know you are, right? Subscribe or leave us a review to let us know how we're doing. I'm Dan Weissman. Curious City is produced by Jennifer Brandel, WBEZ, and AIR, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Doris and Howard Conant Fund for Journalism.
1: Curious City on WBEZ is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, understanding and preventing suicide through research, education, and advocacy. Chicago area residents can join the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention for the Out of Darkness Chicagoland Community Walk. Registration, information, and support at www.chicagowalk.org. Cabbage heads! Cabbage heads! Cabbage heads! Cabbage heads! That's so good. And we get paid for this. Ladies and gentlemen,
0: we get paid. Not very much, but we do. (laughs) Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including
1: contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program
0: at wbez.org curious. Thank you.